Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Coaches Corner University podcast. I am your host, Paul Oneid. And today, I have the distinct pleasure of, of talking with a new friend of mine, uh, Eric Chesson. Eric is the owner of Autism Fitness and specializes in training neurodivergent populations and also educating others on how to do the same. This was something that uh, you know, Eric and I met at the Coaches Room Mastermind in December and just hearing him talk about what he does and the passion that he has for serving the population that he serves really interested me to learn more. So I'm really, really glad to have you on the podcast, Eric. Thanks so much. Thank you, Mr. Oneid. Happy to be here, man. Yeah. So once you give me a little bit of a background, like we, you know, we only spoke briefly at, at the conference. I'd love to know a little bit more about, you know, your background and how you got into coaching neurodivergent populations. Yeah. The origin story. So, yeah. so it, it comes back to, I went to undergrad for um, forensic psychology uh, of all things, but because it was it was undergrad, it was mostly general psych, and I really loved the the psychological aspect of of performance as as it related to um, to fitness. At the time, I really got gotten into lifting and to all things. Uh, heavy and, and training. And so I wanted to combine the worlds of fitness and psychology. And I didn't know quite how at that point. So I thought, well, maybe performance psychology would, would be the place to, to go. So I started doing my master's in behavioral psychology. And at the time I was also working as a personal trainer. And when I say working, that's, it's a very, very liberal use of, of the term. I just started out training at um, general population, but in in one of my graduate study classes um, in behavior science, I had a classmate who was working in a research program with teenagers on the autism spectrum. And she had approached me and said, look, I know that you have a personal trainer background. Would you be interested in applying some of that to our program? Because we've never had any type of dedicated program. We've tried some sports stuff, but it hasn't really stuck. So I applied to the program and, and started working with them, underwent uh, intensive training in applied behavior analysis and positive behavior support. And I was starting to scaffold that or bridge it together with um, the fitness side of, uh, of things and noticed that there were a lot of commonalities in the way that we scale um, performance, both from a behavioral and motivational perspective and also from a fitness or, or movement perspective as well. And at the time, because this is around 2002, 2003, there was really nothing out there. So if I attempted to look up information or protocols on fitness for the autism population. You know, there was, there was no such thing as the neurodivergent population. In actuality there was, but certainly not in the nomenclature. Right. Um, but for the autism population, there was no blueprint out there. It would, you would find vague overtures to fitness or physical activity like oh fitness is good for all populations so it's important for special needs populations also it's 
you know, what do you, what do you do with that? So I needed to systematize what I knew from one side and the other side. So basically I had to bridge the gap between the two fields right. and say, all right, well, how do you create a protocol that recognizes the, the motor planning and the strength deficits and all of the things on the physiological side, while also having a really keen understanding of the behavioral needs and, and some of the challenges and, and cognitive functioning as well, in as much as it relates to coaching and information and communication. So from there, I, I started working with some more individuals on, on the autism spectrum, predominantly uh, 12 years old and uh, 12 years and up, which is why my, uh, my the, the thing that bothers me the most is when people refer to my programs for autism fitness in general as, oh, these are programs, great programs for kids on the autism spectrum. Meanwhile, they're watching a video of me working with someone who is clearly an adult too, but we can get into the infantilization of, of the autism population. But I started working with um, more and more individuals and noticed, okay, well, these are some things that I'm seeing over and over with respect to breakdown in physical mechanics and some of the weaknesses and starting to see trends. And when you start to see trends, then you can start to create protocols because if, right. you, see, if you see something once, it's like, okay, is this anomalous or is this something that I can generalize to other individuals? And I was seeing a lot of the same things across individuals who were dissimilar. So starting to pick up on some of the commonalities between dissimilar individuals and being able to create a, a methodology around that. So continued working with a, a wide spectrum of the spectrum. And then in uh, 2017 launched the autism fitness certification for uh, professionals and, and parents and family members who wanted to, who wanted the structure and strategies for developing fitness and adapted PE programs that would actually um, lead to a, a beneficial result. So rather than a randomized, hey, let's try this exercise, let's try that exercise, here's a protocol where we can deliver on, on outcomes that really matter for activities of daily living and, and life performance. So I've begun ca calling uh, the individuals that I work with life skill athletes, um, even if they're not playing a, a competitive sport or have some type of extracurricular um, physical activity, the training, as is the case for many um, neurotypical individuals, is for, is to enhance everything that they can do independently on, on a daily basis. There's a lot to pull from there because so a few things popped into my head as you were talking. The first being you know, you find commonalities amongst very different people. And when I think of whether it be, you know, whether we use the term the autism spectrum or neurodivergent populations, you know, I know a number of individuals who would identify as being on the spectrum mm -hmm. and be extremely high functioning in some areas, extremely low functioning in others. Yeah. And I also have, you know, friends who have family members who are on, on the spectrum and you know, unfortunately are quite low functioning. Mm -hmm. When you're dealing with this wide range of individuals along this seems to be ever growing spectrum. Yeah. 
could you maybe speak to like some of the commonalities that you're seeing in this massive, you know, massive range of, of presentations? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's a great question. So the spectrum, as you uh, alluded to, grows wider and, and wider. And there are individuals who self-identify and then there are individuals who are diagnosed. You have individuals who have significant cognitive and behavioral challenges. And then you have people who are working in the aerospace yeah. industry. And so it's it's so wide that it's difficult to fully encapsulate um, in a in a couple of sentences. But, you know, at base level, if we're going to introduce a diagnostic criteria, individuals who have a uh, a, a significant difficulty in social situations um, have a host and range of stereotypical behaviors, whether it's verbal or or physical, um, and have difficulty navigating a lot of the nuance of, of daily life in there. And, and from there, you can get from, you know, highly independent individuals to profound autism, where someone is going to need one-to-one to one-to-one to, uh, one -one support every waking hour uh, of their day. Yeah. And in there, you know, when we look at some of the commonalities, I think, you know, and from my from my professional perspective, one of the most overlooked things that I've uh that I've seen is the 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 difference in motor pattern issues or strength deficits between the autism and the neurotypical population, we tend to see a lot more strength and motor deficits in individuals on the autism spectrum. And even though it's widely reported, it's not, to my knowledge, part of the current diagnosis. It's, it's almost a footnote. It's a, by the way, you may also right. see gross motor inhibition or abnormalities. And so as a result of that, many newly diagnosed children will also receive physical and occupational therapy as part of their therapeutic protocol. But that is, in, in many cases, it can, it can be hugely beneficial for them. But by the time... I get these individuals at, you know, 12, 13, 14, 30. What I'm seeing is that there is a combination of the motor issues that we see as a result of the diagnosis or some of that um, neuromuscular inhibition and plus uh, a lot of sedentary lifestyles. So not actively engaged. So you have this combination now of they had a deficit of, of motor capabilities and muscular capabilities to begin with, and they haven't been moving for now 5, 10, 15, 25 years. That was going to be my question because it, is it a chicken or the egg situation, right? Are these, are these motor deficits that you're seeing a result of the, you know, the cognitive, uh, cognitive condition or is it just simply because they've been inactive their whole lives and we know we know that there is a link between you know different sorts of of diseases and morbidities associated with 
any number of special needs, whether it be neurodivergence, Down syndrome, along the line, because mm -hmm. there are no physical fitness programs for these people. Mm -hmm. They're not able to participate in traditional sports because mm -hmm. of um, because of their deficits. Yeah. And I would assume that there's also a lot of social stigma around, you know, them just wanting to participate with kids or, or adults their own age mm. it's like a it, it seems to be just a developing multifactorial situation here oh uh, you're a hundred percent correct because you can look at it from you can look at it from the social perspective you can look at it from the societal perspective you can look at it from the cultural perspective also because um it, our culture um i'm not sure whether you you agree, but I have my hunches. We we have a competitive sports obsessed culture. Mm -hmm. So if everything is geared towards that, towards competitive sports, and we don't prioritize general fitness, then from a young age, kids are going to be kind of stratified into, well, you're going to play this sport or that sport. And then and they might for a little while, but if we become so enamored and so uh, focused on sports as the basis for our physical fitness, number one, it's gonna be relatively short duration over someone's lifetime. And number two, we're ignoring all of the general physiological capabilities that need to be developed, not just to participate in sports, but to participate in, in life. Yeah. as well. So looking at it from a social perspective, and we see this with the autism population also, and it's not, I don't think it's necessarily bad, but I think it's a little bit misguided when we say, okay, well, we want, we need an adaptive, uh, you know, fill in the sport here. We need an adaptive baseball league and we need an, an adaptive soccer league and we need, you know, adaptive volleyball, whatever it is fine. But I think we're missing the point of, of setting a foundation. It's like, what, you know, Oh, we have to design the top spire for a uh, for a skyscraper great have you set the foundation yet no but we really want to develop that spot so I, I think that's a cultural issue that um if we look at what is available for the autism and neuroadaptive population as a microcosm of what goes on in general population that gives us some of the answers as to why things are the way they are yeah I think I as you're speaking, I think it's like a, we're trying to apply the same paradigm from one population to the other. Whereas, yeah. you know, with a neurotypical population, sports serves as a scaffolding to learn fitness. Mm -hmm. So even with myself, I was playing basketball and football, started training for those sports, fell in love with training. Ergo, I keep training. Yeah. And every sports performance program I've been a part of has been, hey, you know, even at the highest level, hey, we're at the University of South Florida. 0.5% of these kids are going to go play beyond these four years. Let's try and teach them as much as we can about life. Mm -hmm. So within these walls of the weight room, so that they can continue outside. So sports being the scaffolding for physical fitness doesn't apply because these neurodivergent populations aren't playing competitive sports. Mm -hmm. So you almost have to flip it and say, Hey, like, how do we support them? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And looking at it from the perspective, the way that I, I tend to describe it is the 
any sport or any physical activity, you can take it as competitive or non-competitive. You can say, okay, biking, hiking, canoeing, yeah. uh, you know, cave exploration, whatever. <laughs> the way that I, I analogize it, it, you, you have these branches and the branches can go off in any direction. That's fine. But you need to establish the roots and the trunk of that tree. And that's general physical training. That's your strength. That's your conditioning. That's, you know, being able to pick up something heavy carry it from one place to another, because that is what is going to feed all of these other skills. And you don't look at the branch and say, well, because we can't do that, we can't grow that we can't grow this tree. No, that's just an option. And if the option exists, great, we can take it, we cannot take it. The goal is not to make every individual with a neurodiversity a sport-specific athlete, same as in the neurotypical population. The goal okay. is not to get to a sport or get to a physical activity. The goal is to keep people healthy and moving well. It should be the goal. It should yes. be. Yes, the, the asterisks there. Yeah. the uh, And I think this has like very far-reaching effects because if we're seeing that, you know, these morbidities are, are you know, type 2 diabetes, osteoporosis, yeah. any anything along the lines are more uh, are more prevalent in these populations, we need to support them. We need to have supports in place to get them active and active in ways that I think serve to, like, as you mentioned, serve to assist them as athletes of, of daily living. Mm -hmm. So how do you start to have that conversation with, with the individuals that you're trying to educate? Yeah, well, I think... I, I get the, I don't even necessarily want to call them the early adopters, but I get the people who are already, who already understand this. I'm not in the business. I think most of the time, um, I don't know how objectively I could speak to that, but I don't think I'm in the business of convincing people that fitness is important for these populations. If I ever have, and someone was a complete no to begin with, and then, you know, they read an article or they saw a video and then they said, oh, now I get it. Then I, I'm all the happier because I don't know how often that actually occurs. But it's I, I think it's more of the technical side of things, if that makes sense. If, mm -hmm. if you understand the why, then I can give you the how. If, okay. You don't yet understand the like why fitness is important for this population. I would love to have that debate. I would love to have the debate of fitness is not important for there the autism population. I would love. Oh, please set me up with somebody who would have. I would love to have that debate. I really, I, I really would. But I don't think, I don't think that's the case. I think it becomes more of an issue of prioritization. Like you ask a room, for, if I walk into any room of people associated with fitness or wellness, whatever that means, I don't know, um, or, or the autism and neurodivergent population. Like if I walk into a room of developmental pediatricians and I, or uh, special educators or a combination of the two or families, and I say, how many people think fitness is important and is part of, you know, high quality of life? Everybody's going to raise their hand. Everybody. Yep. Everybody. You know, even if they're guilted into it by, you know, by the group. 
But then when you ask, well, how many people are prioritizing it in the daily lives of the neurodivergent individuals that you serve or teach or, or care for, you know, and, and then how are you doing that also? Because there's a big difference between, you know, like hitting around a beach ball for five minutes and squatting and pressing and pulling. These are, these are two very different things. So I think it's less of a project of convincing than it is prioritization and teaching people how to um, appropriately implement the, the protocols, if that makes sense. Because yeah. I don't think there's anybody who's going to contact me or who's going to be, or is going to go any further than reading an article or seeing a video who isn't already somewhat convinced that there is, there's something in there to, to yeah. be done, as opposed mm -hmm. to let me watch 10 of these autism fitness videos so I can prove to myself that fitness has no place in in the lives of these individuals. Well, at the end of the day, we're, they're all people, right? And and mm -hmm. people need to move. People need yeah. to be active. Um, and when I'm when you're talking about prioritization, it seems almost funny to me that there would be an the devil's advocate argument. Whenever yep. we're dealing with these sorts of situations, it's like where on the list of priorities should this fall? If we're already yeah. teaching them, or we're already providing support for, uh, you know verbal acuity we're also doing learning mm -hmm. we're also doing uh, activities of daily living stuff where does fitness fall into line and all that pops into my head is fitness is the foundation yes right movement is the foundation motor learning is the foundation and it's the low-hanging fruit that feeds into all of these other things so if anything fitness should be the first line of treatment when it comes to dealing with neurodivergent populations. Cause you know, I've seen your videos half the time. It's how do I hold attention? Mm -hmm. how, you know, how do I uh, cue effectively? How do I teach kinesthetic awareness? Those are all parallel skills to activities of daily living, learning speech, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So like, to me, that's a no brainer. Well, that, if only we could we could take that and, and replicate it. One of the coolest projects that I ever did, and this this just happened um, organically. I was running the uh, adapted PE program for a year for um, for a small private um, education facility, and they I had a speech therapist who said, hey, I'd like to collaborate and work in with you for the high school students. And we created speech gym. So during, and it was just gross motor stuff. So we would go through the warm up. we would do, uh, you know, medicine ball stuff. And then we would go through a circuit of all the strength exercises. And throughout, you know, during the breaks, she would ask her, the students, you know, who, who she was working with one-to-one, uh, -one, she said, hey, what exercise did you just do? What happened before that? What happened after that? So sequencing and um, and being able to re and being able to reiterate what you did. So short term memory prepositions in on under and what, one of the major things uh, or major hallmarks of autism is having difficulty with abstract concepts too, which is somewhat ironic because I use so many um, analogies when I when I teach, but not when I coach, because there's a big difference. So 
being able in the moment to have these students reference, oh, what did you just do? What are you doing now? What are you going to do next? You know, what did you do with the ball? All of these things that when you're just sitting across from someone at a table are really abstract and you, and you really have to, some of our students have to struggle to, to pull those things when they're doing them. You know, aside from the fact that we are lighting up all these different centers of the brain that are responsible for short-term memory, but it's this in vivo active learning process that I would argue, though I'm biased here, is so much more effective than doing it just, you know, at a, at a table. I don't think you'd have to argue very hard because there's a, a significant amount of research around exercise and memory, mm -hmm. right? So if, uh, it's funny. This is admittedly, this is a topic I've thought very little about. I've mm -hmm. worked with a, a couple neurodivergent clients, but they're very high functioning, very autonomous. Mm -hmm. um, and even in the remote world, they're, you know, maybe I have to do a few more videos or more voice messages as yeah. to written or, you know, there's, there's little nuances like that, but but when we're talking about working with somebody one-on-one, -on -one, it it almost like you have to remember the name of the exercise. You have to remember how it's performed. You have to perform it in real time. You have to be able to feel where you are in space, be able mm -hmm. to provide feedback back to your coach about how it's feeling. All of these things just light up learning in general, let alone motor learning. Yep. What is... Okay, so I'm trying to word this question appropriately because for me, like you're saying you're saying all this stuff, and I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Where are the barriers for you when it comes to implementation? It's mainly so when I do an intake session, so I the based on that history of figuring out how do I do this. I developed a protocol called the PAC profile, which is physical, adaptive, and cognitive. And that can be, it can be utilized in many different situations across, you know, all, I would dare say all human beings speak from, from the perspective of implementing a, a fitness program, because first we're looking at the exercise. Okay, how well does this individual perform this particular exercise can they perform it at a standard level where they don't need support? Can I progress it? Or more likely, you know, how do I need to, to modify it? And then we have the adaptive. That's the level of motivation and the level of engagement. How motivated are they to perform this particular exercise right now? And then we have the cognitive, which I split into neuromuscular and neurological one side is more of the communicative and one is more of the experiential. And that's where we get the, you know, the kinesthetic awareness and so forth. So the obstacles can be in any one of those three categories. And oftentimes they cross over. So it's a, it's a Venn diagram of physical, adaptive, and cognitive. And I'll give you an example. If I have an athlete who is, overhead pressing a pair of uh, sand bells or dumbbells, but they're going really quickly. So they're not, uh, they're not focused on having, never mind a slow, but a controlled 
eccentric and it's just kind of pumping the arms up and up and down really quickly in order to be done with it. That's a challenge because clearly the exercise is not being executed in a way where there's going to be a significant training effect. But my job as now a coaching detective is to figure out, is this predominantly a physical issue where they do not have the strength sufficient to control this pair of weights? Is it more of an adaptive issue where they are not significantly motivated to perform the exercise correctly, or they're motivated to be done with it sooner so that they can take a break or not be doing it? And or is it more of an issue of cognitive functioning where they don't understand the expectation for performance because to them, again, getting back to the abstract nature of a lot of this, if they don't understand the difference between a slow controlled movement pattern and just that clumsy up and down so they can be done with it, then I have to add a layer of meaning to that for them because it's not going to happen ex nihilo. Like it's not just going to appear like all of a sudden it's meaningful to them. So the challenges are, most of the time the challenges where they arise are figuring out what is the underlying reason for either the adaptive issue so the um the the non-motivation or the lower motivation what or what is the barrier in their understanding of performance now where it gets to a more extreme or concerning level is when you have an athlete who will engage in in some more uh severe dysregulated behavior. So an athlete who is a wanderer or an athlete who bolts, who just runs across the room because you have to set up a different set of parameters around that because then it becomes a safety concern. But right. if I have an athlete who is doing a set of hurdle steps for hip mobility when they're warming up and they do the first two or three and then they wander off, all right, I now I have to take into account what is the context of this? Why is this happening? What are they doing? Are they distracted or are they unmotivated? Is it a combination of the two? Do they not understand the expectation? So it's this constant interplay between deciding what is the most significant uh, factor of what's going on here. Is it the physical where the exercise is too challenging? Is it the adaptive where the athlete does not have sufficient motivation to complete this to their current level ability, or is it cognitive and they simply do not understand, or I haven't conveyed the in an appropriate enough way, how this is supposed to look. That is so interesting to me because it brings up like developing a toolbox of strategies mm -hmm. that you can implement kind of on the fly. Yeah. Because you're in a session with this person, right? You, you can't, okay, let me just check my book here. Uh -huh. Right. Yeah. So like having, I'm thinking like, there's probably elements of gamification. There's probably elements of verbal and nonverbal cueing. There's probably elements of implementing, imp implementing, <laughs> implementing different, um, you know, visual targets and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Like I, I remember seeing a video of you doing a med ball exercise with a client and you, they actually had to physically hit a target, mm -hmm. like different things like that. Yeah.
Now we talk like implementation with the individual. Absolutely. There's going to be a ton of dynamic, uh, dynamic thoughts and implementations and strategies there. I don't think the people who you are trying to serve directly with training are going to be the biggest barrier for you. I'm guessing the biggest barrier for you is more systemic. Mm -hmm. How are you going about raising awareness for this? Yeah. Well, a lot of it, I, I wouldn't say necessarily that uh, I, I've been prolific, but there's a lot of stuff that I've put out there because I've been doing this for, oh, 20 years now. Um, Don't age yourself. A lot there. What's that? Don't age yourself. No, I, I don't care, man. Um, yeah, I, I started in, in 2002, 2003, and I think I started writing about it maybe three or four years after that just to get information out. So I think it's a case of, and this is, you know, also on some of the things that I'm working on this year, um, I have very much relied upon people finding me and putting enough information and good information out there that people understand um, what it is. Because if it, and this again speaks to the, the notion that if someone is already convinced that this is important, then I'm not going to have too many barriers about people at least looking into what I'm doing. If you're looking for autism and fitness or neurodivergence and fitness, you're, I'm pretty confident that you're going to find me. Right. Uh, SEO is fantastic. Yeah. Of the, of the modality. Yeah. So that's most of it, but also, and this is one of the things that I'm working on this year. And it's, it's one of the reasons that I really am happy to be speaking with you is to be letting other individuals in the field and in the periphery know that it is a thing that exists, uh, you know, as well. And talking, so I, I, I know this is, this is larger scale and maybe a little bit more, more on the meta side, but as a, as a legacy, I don't, I'm not, satisfied or comfortable just being uh oh the coach for you know the autism and neurodivergent population i would rather be known as someone who is a really good and really capable coach for this population because we're still in that practically zygotic i wouldn't even go infancy stage but zygotic stage of fitness being culturally or or generally relevant or noticed for this population so great but then it's a question of are we just implementing fitness programs or is it actual are are we actually understanding effective programming so i don't want someone just looking at my pro at, at one of my videos or one of our certified pros videos and saying, Oh, great. It's fitness programming for the neurodivergent population or the autism population. I want someone looking at it. And I know this is a big ask, but someone looking at it and say, Oh, that looks really good because I can see that they're focused on quality movement. I, because I want there, I, I, I want there to be that discrepancy of it's not just about having a program. It's about effective programming. It's not, it's not a program, it's the program, right? Yeah. So when I, when I 
when I met you and heard you speak in December, I got the impression that you didn't just want, like, as you mentioned, you didn't just want to be a coach for neurodivergent populations. I got mm. the impression that you wanted to create systemic change. I got the impression that, you know, you speaking about, I need to get in touch with educators. I need to get in touch with administrators. I need to make sure that these, like, it, I have a very young niece and nephew. They're, they're seven and nine. Every single kid in their class pretty much has an AEP. Mm -hmm. Why, why can that, or why can't that, or why shouldn't that extend into physical practice? Mm -hmm. And when we talk about physical practice for neurotypical populations, of course, we need to get these kids active and moving, yet we continue to cut PE programs. Yeah. I think we're doing a massive disservice when we don't highlight the need for neurodivergent populations to be to be as active or have a greater investment in physical activity. But further than that, you mentioned there are no standardized AEP programs for fitness in neurodivergent populations. Like there's no special education PE class. Mm -hmm. That there are it varies so much, but it borders on vague like a box check they just have it yeah like, yeah yeah, we yeah. Have. and and districts will vary too but you know i i speak with people all over the world and i hear a lot of the same things i haven't seen and it could i could just be missing it i haven't seen a district yet and I'm talking throughout the continental US where they had everything together and they're like, all right, this is our, you know, level foundations of movement for our elementary, you know, our adapted PE elementary students. And then we build, we scaffold it and build it next into middle school. And then by high school, it's the, it's kind of a conglomeration of, well, you know, let's do an adapted sports um, unit and then we'll move on to this thing. And then, you know, maybe we'll we'll try to generalize it to our our uh, regular PE classes. And that's how a lot of a lot of the uh, adapted PE staff wind up finding my program, too. They're like, We need structure that's actually going to work because we have seven, eight, nine um middle or high school kids coming in with, uh, on the autism spectrum and we are not equipped to you know to use your phrase systematically um to to have something for them now are they are there federal and state mandates to have that program yes are they always being followed no what so we get into yeah so we get into oh. paul what you were previously asking it's I think it's a travesty when you have rhetorical questions that actually need to be answered. Like, should that's what I feel be... like I'm asking you? That's yeah. I literally feel <laughs> should, like I'm, I'm like, shouldn't we have fitness like, programs yeah, in the neurodivergent population? Well, do we really need to answer that? But yes, we do need to answer oh, that. Goodness. Then we need to justify it. Yeah. Um, so, what are some things that you're focused on? I know a big thing for you is your certification program. Yeah. What's next for you in terms of starting that process of creating systemic change? It's getting into, so one of my big focuses, um, or two, I, I should say two of my big focuses for this year 
number one, getting into uh, school districts um, around the United States and, and worldwide as well. And then getting the program into residential facilities, because after 18 years old, you know, what happens? There are many 20 and 30 and 40 year old individuals on the spectrum who are sitting at home, you know, with their parents or, or during the day, because there's this gap between, you know, maybe they are not, not, not even necessarily capable of, but don't have the opportunities to be employed, to have a vocation or an avocation, to be doing something uh, during the day. But you think about over, you know, someone's lifetime, what starts to happen when they are not physically active into their 30s and into their 40s and into their 50s. So I want to approach it from both ends of, of the lifetime in the schools where everybody theoretically has access to a physical education or an adapted physical education program. Okay, we have it there for them as the standard and we know this works. And then in the residential facilities, well, they are there all day and they are there long-term. How do we pro how do we implement something that's proactive that is also going to, and you had mentioned this earlier in our conversation, something that is going to potentially mitigate or eradicate a lot of the um a lot of the medical complications that we know are going mm -hmm. to arise because we see it in the neurotypical population when we talk about muscular atrophy and bone degeneration and low back pain and the types of you know cardiovascular disease and cancer that are not definite but certainly um more likely in the wake of someone being inactive and these the the travesty is not the autism diagnosis. The, the travesty is not implementing something that we know can be a, a clear preventative catalyst to things that we are well aware happen as people in the Western hemisphere age. It, it seems to me it would just be a linchpin for everything else to just completely change. And Potentially an ignorant question, but I need to ask it anyway, considering I am in Canada mm -hmm. and we have a, you know, our, our medical education system is socialized. Yeah. How much of this boils down to funding? How much of this boils down to not having enough resources to support these individuals who potentially aren't of the financial means to pay for this privately? Yeah, I, I, th I think it, I, I think a lot of it does, but not not all of it. I, I've found that where there is motivation, someone will find the budget. Now, it's not always the case for a family to pay privately, but I think that's all the more reason to have it as something that is systemic um, because we, we know what the outcomes can be with and we know what the outcomes can be without as well. So again, it becomes a prioritization thing. But, you know, in the US and Canada also, one of the, I won't even say a failing of, because I, I, I think that's, it, it's more of a feature than a failing. But one of the features of Western medicine is that it's highly reactive. 
to True. Yeah. someone already is symptomatic or already has something going on. But fitness very much fits into the um, the preventative care model, but the preventative care model is often more difficult to fund than the reactive care model. That totally makes sense to me. That totally makes sense to me. So from your perspective, moving forward, let's let's talk five years down the line, 10 years down the line. What's your vision for fitness for people on the neurodivergent spectrum? Well, first making it a pillar of when, when there's a conversation about the, I, I suppose the operant word is interventions, but someone gets an, uh, an autism diagnosis that, you know, right now it's typically around anywhere from three to five years old. It, it, it depends where, and it depends on the pronouncement of the, of the symptoms. But in that conversation are usually behavior therapy, speech therapy, occupational and physical therapy. What I want to see happen is once a, a child is in their education program beyond pre-K, is that the movement component of it from five through 18 is always there in that educational setting, whether public or private. So this is why getting into um, school districts and having it be the standard operating procedure for adapted PE is, is really the goal. And then for it to, you know, th there's room for it to be in speech therapy. There's room for it to be in occupational therapy as far as, far as the systematizing. Mm -hmm. I, from a professionally selfish perspective, I think about it this way. If I wind up with a private client here in, in Charlotte who is 25, if at the elementary level, elementary through high school, the autism fitness curriculum were the standard for what they were doing, then there's so much more that I can deliver because we're not starting from the same right. deficit as I am with an athlete who's 25, who's never had a fitness program. Right. Before. So you think about it through the lifetime and really it being a, a, another one. So, so that from, I guess the public perspective I was looking over the 2024 list of different autism conferences around the world and of the maybe 20 or so that I looked through, like the bigger conferences, not one of them had fitness as that, you know, some interventions on, on, um, you know, motor skills, but nothing that bold face was strength and fitness for the autism population even the word when exercise I, wasn't there yeah exactly like exercise like none of them so and again these are if i had the thousand or 1500 or however many people are attending these conferences in a room and said how many people think fitness is important all the hands would go up and yet not one presentation for fitness and healthy living. So when we're talking about life skill outcomes and quality of life, if you're not including fitness as part of that, I'm wondering 
Like what's missing oh, well, in the thought process? What's missing here? So this is completely backtracking into our conversation, but it yeah. just clued, it just clued into my, into my mind. Yeah. We talked about sports and we talked about participation. Yeah. A lot of our development, both cognitively and socially comes from play. Mm -hmm. How, how do you go about implementing play within your programs? Yeah. Uh, or how do we kind of entice the participation of neurodivergent populations into play? Yeah. That's such it, a hard it, question. It, it's a great question. And it, I, I will say the two most annoying words as, as to any answer. Yeah. And you know what they're going to be. It's, it depends. Yeah. It depends on the individual because of the, when I mentioned earlier about the abstract nature of, you know, life and of, of different, um, different contexts um, and areas ability for this population, sometimes gamification can work really, really well. And sometimes gamification is still so abstract for the individual that it's not really going to have the, um, the intended benefit or the intended outcome that we want to deliver because, and I'll, I'll give a concrete example. If you give, if you provide analogous coaching to an individual with autism, and this is like broad, very general, but but speaking from that perspective, if I say, oh, run as fast as a cheetah, like go super fast, they may not have a working context for not only go as fast as, but fast in general compared to just go from here to there. So I have to be very careful and knowledgeable about that particular individual to know what type of, of communication is going to land for them. So the gamification, and it's not to say, well, it never works, it certainly can. So if I have an athlete who is enthralled with uh, SpongeBob SquarePants, for example, we can create you know, a, a scenario where, okay, pick up this heavy medicine ball and carry it over to Mr. Crab and then bring the Krabby Patty back. We can make it as robust as possible, but oftentimes the determining factor in the success of a program with the autism population is simplifying it as much as possible and not making it about me as the coach and all of the creative ways and directions that I can go with this, but making it so clear and so concise and so salient for that individual so that they can just do the thing that I am coaching them to do. And then the reinforcement on the other side is my being able to tell them that was an awesome overhead press. I love the way you did that. So oftentimes it's getting out of, I, I think one of the best things that the course teaches, and I've just learned this um, from teaching it 70 something times at this point, is getting professionals attuned to the coaching process, not being about them, mm. but being about the athlete. And that's what empathetic coaching is. It's not about sympathizing with the athlete, but getting a good sense of how they relate to the information that you're giving them. Um, and I, I think that 
in and of itself it has has value but it is also going to shape the efficacy of your of your coaching it's funny you say that because it's something that i say to co to to coaches all the time whenever i'm educating on coaching and creating that coach athlete relationship it is about empathy it's all about putting yourself as the the you're leading from a place of empathy in the sense that you have to allow that person to guide their own process. And you can't do that if you're always in front of them. Yeah. And I, I just, I just love that you said that this, this concept is so fascinating to me, mo mostly because as a coach, I get my biggest wins whenever clients overcome like very complex problems or very challenging situations. And I feel like every single day when you're working with these individuals and you see that light bulb or that spark that happens, yeah. they unlock that thing that maybe they never believed that was possible. That's got to feel so good for you. And not only that, when you see, when you see it in the people that have supported that individual, right? The, the parent, the caregiver, wh whatever that might be, that's got to feel really good. Yeah. It, it's when something clicks, like I, and when I have professionals who go through the, through the certification, I tell them you got to find, because this is oftentimes so challenging, you got to find your thing in this. For me, my thing is I'm a technician. I love to see an athlete click with an exercise so they finally slow down with that squat pattern mm. or they finally get a really good grip on a band or a cable when they're doing the row pattern like they've got it they understand it they're self-correcting i can step back i love seeing high quality physical performance now that also includes the athlete being motivated enough and understanding the expectation, but it's the I've got this moment that I'm striving for. And oftentimes, you know, a family member or parent is thrilled, you know, sometimes the bar is really low. They're just thrilled that their son or daughter is participating. So it's up to me oftentimes to say, this is why this is so good. Like not only, yeah, yeah, they're, you know, behavior was awesome today and they were on task. And But check this out. The fact that they were going really slow and really deliberate with this movement means that their upper back is getting stronger. Their shoulders are getting stronger. This is not just, hey, they're doing it. They're doing it really well. Mm. That to me, that that's what keeps me in it. That's what keeps me excited. Well, and I saw you light up as soon as you started talking about it, you know, everything, everything came up, posture comes up, you start. Yeah. I love that. And I think, you know, I think the last thing that I want to talk about is something that you mentioned at the beginning was something you kind of want to get rid of or, or dispel is the infant infantization of yeah. the individuals. And I think we're all, we're all guilty of it, especially in like people like myself. I, I don't necessarily deal with these populations all the time. Yeah, we have friends and family who who deal with uh, you know neurodivergence. It's becoming more and more common to hear about these barriers that people face. But at the end of the day, whenever we think about someone with autism, we always think about a kid. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's like the first. It's like, oh, my friend Shane has a son who is who's autistic. Yeah. 
It's yeah. never, it's never, oh, that 30 year old individual. Yeah. Yeah. Speak, speak to that a little bit. Yeah. And I, I don't think, I don't, it's not a blame shame thing. It's just, well, they, they grow up like, like yeah. anybody else. And I think when we're talking about, I, I think it also speaks to the idea that, you know, sports programs or movement programs, everything's for kids, you know, but what do adults do? Adults go to the gym. But what if you have an adult who is not individually, independently capable of, of going to the gym? So I think it's more of a, um, I think people are used to, used to it. And I think we are trained to think, oh, if it's like any type of program for the autism population, automatically it's going to be for kids because why wouldn't it be? Because everything I've seen before is, you know, is for sure. kids. And you don't see it's even in media and even in information, it's a, it's a lot easier to market, you know, showing a smiling kid on the autism spectrum than someone who is like 48 and where, you know, and, and wearing, you know, a stained sweatshirt or something like that. You know, it's, I think there is a, um, not necessarily a marketing component to it, but I think there's a visual component to it as well. And just understanding that because someone has autism, it doesn't mean that, oh, these are, you know, these are just kids and the programs are just for them. It's like, what are we doing for individuals as they, you know, as they age? I think it's also that when we talk about services and we talk about diagnosis, mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of the common um, feature of, of dialogue that comes up. Oh, hey, you know, my, my niece or my nephew, or I have this family member and they have you know, a son or a daughter, and they're like six or seven, they just got diagnosed. Um, seldom do you have the conversation, hey, yeah, I know, I, I, you know, my next door neighbor has a kid, and he's like 22, and he lives at home, and they don't have anything to, for him to do all day. No, you never hear about that. You never hear that conversation, but that they are out there, and that, you know, talking about <laughs> you put it so simply, you're like, yeah, these kids grow up. They do. And they still need support. Man, I, they need a lot. So oftentimes more so than, you know, children are not in every case, but children are way, way more exponentially more likely to get support. It may not be everything that they need, but they're going to get more support than an adult. An adult is family struggle to get support for, you know, the 21 and, and over population. So when we have these discussions, you know, about fitness programming, it it's not just, oh, this is a fun. It, I think there's a difference between like fitness and recreation. Mm -hmm. Recreation is great and it's important, but to lump fitness in with recreation is doing it a disservice because really? then it just seems like this fun little thing that we're doing on the side. Like, oh, we're going to go to, you know, physical activity class and we're going to run around and stuff. It's like, okay, great. But what are we doing again for those foundational movements? Like, what well, are we doing as a foundational basis? Yeah. Yeah. I, I see fitness as being outcome oriented, right? We're trying to achieve, we're, it's a stimulus adaptation. We're trying to achieve some sort of yeah. you know, adaptation response. And when we link, loop it into recreation, it's like, we're just doing this for fun and enjoyment. 
Yeah. No, we're doing this to actually be better. We're, we're lifestyle athletes or activities of daily living yeah. athletes. And I just, I, I love how you frame this conversation. And I think it's one that needs to be had. And I do hope that, you know, you're able to continue to get your message out because uh, it's one that needs to be heard. So thank I you very I, much. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think ultimately, and this is the case for general population too. I think this is a, a universal constant. Fitness is a necessity that oftentimes winds up being a luxury. Yeah. And so if we're going to change that, particularly for more vulnerable populations, then it needs to be, you know, coming back to this again, it needs to be systemic because it's not going to, the community, the autism community itself, aside from, you know, aside from a segment of that population that who are self-advocates, doesn't have the the capability to start that movement on their own. So it has to be the professionals and the advocates and the families mm -hmm. who make this a priority. Yeah, I totally see that. Um, so I have a couple of questions for you that are completely unrelated to what we were just talking about. Yeah. <laughs> but I'd love to finish the podcast with a few fun questions. Yes. If you had a billboard on the side of the road, what would you have on it? One message for everyone to see. Or um, just in general. Oh, um, is it's actually a a quote that I keep on the front of my phone, and I'm often guilty of breaking this. But uh, <laughs> protect yourself from your own thoughts. I like that. My thoughts are very dangerous. Sometimes. <laughs> thoughts are not reality. Yeah, I like that. Um, do you crack an egg on a flat surface or on the corner of the pan? Corner of the pan. Most dudes do that. Chefs crack it on a flat surface. Yeah. It's weird. Um, one album you could listen to, no skips. Um, you know, it's funny because I haven't listened to it for, for so long, but uh, there's an indie band, Ambulance, L uh, Ambulance Limited, LTD. And it's this, it's normally what I wouldn't listen to, but it is just such an awesome album. I think it was 2003, 2004. Eclectic. Yeah. Last question. And one where I get you to do my job for me. Is, who would you like to see on this podcast with the caveat that you have to help me get them on the podcast? Oh man. Um, Let me think, you know, I was the reason that I say this is I was just talking about him uh, with somebody else, but uh, Joel Proskowitz, okay. who Coach Cav could probably make that happen. What's uh, what's Joel's background? Joel is one of um, uh. Stu McGill's um, master level back specialist. Okay. He's, he's in London and his knowledge of back anatomy and the function of the human spine is jaw dropping. Very cool. And he's a lovely gentleman too. That means I gotta, I gotta get Stu on first. 
Can't be having, I had Brian on already and can't have, I can't have Joel before I have Stu on and send him a text. <laughs> or maybe I'm Joel and then Stu wants to comment. Do them both at the same time. Yeah. It'd be fun. Eric, this was an absolute pleasure, my man. Thank you so much for your time. Um, we'll have links to where you can find Eric and Autism Fitness in the show notes if you're interested in getting a hold of him. Uh, I know he loves to have conversations, so please be sure to reach out. Please make sure to like, share, subscribe. Eric, thank you so much, my man. Thank you, Paul. Pleasure. Take care, guys.